Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, welcome to Parenting the Adlerian Way. I'm your host, Adlerian family counselor and parenting expert, Allison Schaefer. Each week, I answer your burning parenting questions to help reduce the stress of parenting one tip at a time. We'll explore Adlerian psychology together and learn methods of child guidance for raising a happy, confident, capable, resilient child. Hi, it's Allison, and welcome back to the podcast. Today, we are doing a question and answer session, and boy, the questions have been pouring in, so I've got a whole bunch to share with you today, different ages, uh, all the way through the life cycle, so let's get going here. Uh, Hi, Allison, looking for some sage advice. My 15-year-old daughter has been with her boyfriend for three months. It seems to be a bit more serious than I'm comfortable with. My husband thought he overheard them exchange, I love yous. Out of our concern, and because she's rarely fully truthful, I checked her journal and read what they, that they are saying, I love you. But I also learned that she snuck out to see him in the middle of the night. I'm at a loss for what to do. I don't want her to know that I read her journal, but need to address the sneaking out. At the same time, we want to address my feelings that this is too much too soon. Any help is appreciated. All right. Well... I'm noticing that we're talking about this particular situation, but what jumped out to me is that you said that she never fully tells the truth. So what you're describing is a 15-year-old who is lying and sneaking. And so when we say what would, in this particular case about a boyfriend, but um, what would make a child want to lie and sneak to their parents? And what we find is that when a child can't get their needs met through positive means, Um, then it's often when they have a controlling or authoritative dictatorship type parent. Hope I'm saying that right. And so what we find is that when we try to rule with um, an iron fist, we end up creating children who are either going to rebel against our our, um, power or they're going to go more on the overt side. And that's when we start seeing the sneaking, the cheating, the lying, the deceitfulness. It's just a more passive form of getting around your power and control. So with all children, but most especially with teenagers, 
this is really where the rubber hits the road and we realize that we can't control what they do, that we're better to shift up our parenting styles to one that is more democratic and work towards uh, winning cooperation, not forcing obedience. And so um, whether or not you're ready for her to be dating and um, exchanging I love yous, uh, you know, who knows how in love they are and how much love a 15 year old is, is capable of. Um, but this is what we do. We get crushes and it's, we it think it's our first love and we want to see our, our partners. And so we want to help her to be able to make sure that as she progresses into love relationships, that, um, that she does them in ways that are healthy. So those are the conversations I would be having with her, not, not whether or not she's actually in love or not, but that she's got big feelings and she's getting closer with this man and she's uh, developing um, this part of her uh, sexual development. And you want to make sure that she uh, is picking partners that treat her well, that are respectful, that she is not going faster than her own um, pace is. So teaching her to listen to her inner voice and uh, and to trust it. And if she needs to say no, this comes up with talking about consensual relationships. If she doesn't feel like holding hands, if she doesn't feel like necking, if she doesn't feel like, you know, whatever, um, heavy petting, those are all things that you need to be talking about now. So it's not whether you're ready or not, because our readiness is not going to determine our kids' speed of readiness. Uh, it just means they're going to get more deceptive. They're going to find, they're going to make out in the day instead of at night, or they're going to, you know, she's going to end up hanging out at his house instead of bringing him to your house. They'll, they'll find a way. So we want to help them move along that uh, relationship trajectory in a way that's, that's, that's healthy. And so sorry if that's uncomfortable for you, that you've got a daughter who uh, you are not ready for her to be that mature, but she is. And so we have to kind of go with that. So see if you can't try to um, create some more reasonableness uh, so that she's willing to work with you as opposed to sneaking around you. Hope that helps and good luck with that. <laughs> Another one here. Hi, my nine-year-old boy has been starting to talk about his body in a negative way. Any suggestions? He will only go swimming if he has a top on. He doesn't like his stomach. I've been encouraging healthy eating and exercise outside. COVID for sure has had an impact. Well, you've already made a really great point there, which is, um, you know, we want to keep discussions about our body uh, to be about them being healthy and strong and, um, uh, you know, keeping them in, in a high functioning order. And we want to keep it out of the realm of beauty and what an ideal body looks like. And unfortunately, isn't that sad that even at nine, and in this case, it's a boy, but it happens for boys and girls, and they're both just as sensitive to the idea that society tells them their body should look one way. And when they look down, they don't look, they don't like what they see. So I think you can be empathetic to say like, oh, it would be really terrible to not feel comfortable in your body, not feel comfortable in your own skin. But you're only nine years old, you're still growing, you don't know what your adult body is going to look like. So often what happens with growing children and he can talk to the doctor about this too, which is they tend to kind of grow wide and then have a growth spurt and, and then they, their proportionality looks different and then they might, you know, get a little bulkier and then they have another growth spurt and you don't really put on muscles until you finish hitting your maximum height. So a lot of boys that think they're supposed to have six pack abs, like they see in, on Instagram or on TV shows, that's never going to happen for a nine-year-old boy. So, um, so I think you keep it in, keep it light, uh, ex explain a little bit of the science there and, um, and then just don't, don't make a big deal about it. Um, 
you know, if he wants to wear a shirt when he's swimming, you say, no, do, you know, do what makes you comfortable. And I would just try to keep it really on the low down there. And hopefully, um, he, uh, you know, with, with age and growth, uh, things will just work their way out. And I'm now also assuming that your, your household eats healthily and, and everybody moves around. I think it would be very hard if everyone was, um, you know, having French fries and burgers and milkshakes every day. <laughs> so our job is to model healthy eating, have, have healthy food in the house, talk about how each of the food groups supports our health and nutrition um, and, and just keep it away from, from beauty and, and tables and all that kind of stuff. Okay, so I have a, a longer question here. Um, so, and, and it's got multiple parts to it. So let me take my time reading it and hopefully I'll be able to address everything. Uh, I have a strained relationship with my son. He still struggles with his ADHD. He has very little motivation for schoolwork except for math, which he likes getting tutored to refresh his memory and to stay on top of math this semester. He struggles to keep his bedroom and bathroom clean. I know he has moments of inspiration to clean up and put things away, but often it starts with stating his plan, but then he gets distracted and the plan fizzles. Both bedroom and bathroom are just gross now and he knows it. I know it bothers him to see the chaos. Right now, he only has one pitiful gig of data on his phone. He has asked me multiple times to get more. Whenever I say, I'll take you to soccer practice when you clean up your stuff in the kitchen, he gets very upset and says, then I won't go to soccer. I know he's trying to make me feel guilty because I know he can't get enough of soccer. I don't react and, and, and just say, that's fine. I'm disappointed because he's letting his pride get the better of him. And also, it's the wasted expense. Should I be consistent? in that way of comporting myself? Uh, should you suggest that I increase his data if I see that he is consistently completing his chores? I feel like I'm rewarding him. He also wants a gym membership. He already does soccer five days a week. He says he's exhausted when he gets home and then that's his excuse out of his chores. Yet he stays up watching TV, gaming, socializing with all his friends till 1 a.m. He also has to consider the time it will take for him to get back home long walk or long waits for buses. I told him that I felt that he was already getting a lot of physical activity. Some nights it's three hours of training, goalkeeper and, and team soccer, and I'm shuttling him here and there. I do it because he loves it and is good at it. Uh, let me also add that he's getting serious about his diet, asking for healthy items to add to my shopping list so that he can prepare multiple meals ahead of time and take it with him to school to fuel him at school and going to the gym. The school gym is dirt cheap. He says it's not enough and has rejected it and wants to go to the real gym. I totally get it. But he's already doing a lot of soccer and wants to do three to four gym frequencies a week. It's just not physically sustainable to manage everything. So my idea is that he pay for it and I see that he's managing soccer, gym, schoolwork chores and then I'll reimburse him every month. Thoughts? By the way, he has a part-time job working late nights most weekends. Okay, so if I'm just trying to understand a little bit about this child, let me just reflect back in this small s snippet here, that here's a kid who meets the criteria for ADHD. And uh, so this is given as the reason why he can't organize uh, the job of cleaning his bathroom and his bedroom and it's all messy. He starts with a plan and it all falls apart. But then, you know, I'm challenged by also hearing later that this is a kid who organizes lunches, plans in advance for his snacks, manages to get himself to a part-time job, a gym, does two sports to a tutor. 
He's juggling a lot of balls and he seems to be organizing. He's very high functioning in the responsibilities that he cares about. He doesn't seem to be high in the responsibilities that are things that you're asking of him or things that he doesn't want to do, the subjects other than math that he doesn't care about, the cleaning up of the dishes that he doesn't care about, the cleaning up of his bathroom that he doesn't care about. And we're blaming this on the ADHD, and, and I really think he's just not being cooperative because he's clearly high-functioning in these other areas. To plan ahead, to execute uh, organizing your nutrition for school and lunches, it's very responsible. So, so let's just keep that in mind, the difference between the can't and the won't. He doesn't want to get along with you. And I think one of the reasons he doesn't want to get along with you right now is that he feels that you are the gatekeeper to his desires. That you can see from these multitude, multiple examples that you've given here is that that you are controlling him with either um, access to the car to driving him to his games or access to money to get the uh, gigs on his um, phone or the access to money so that he can get his membership at the gym. And when he's told that these are conditional, that when you behave a certain way, then I will give you these things. When you do as I say, do the dishes, clean your chores, keep your marks up, whatever it is, when you, when little monkey jumps, then I am, then I will open up the, the purse strings. And I think there is a resentment that this is how money is being handled. And, um, he is feeling um, that sense of you overpowering him, and um, uh, and so he's not feeling a goodwill and a friendliness to want to get along with you, to put away his dish, and to keep his bathroom clean. It's a little, it's a little tit for tatter, a little bit revengeful. So um, I would have the conversation um, with yourself and you, maybe you sit down with him and talk about what are the expectations for a parent raising a kid and what, what, is, um, what is a parent responsible for and what is a child responsible for. And I often do this exercise of the difference between needs and wants. And as a parent, we have certain obligations to make sure that our kids are housed and fed and clothed and have some of their basic necessities. And things above and beyond the basic necessities, um, then the child needs to, as, as a teenager, certainly, needs to to kick in. And we're seeing he's kicking in because he has a part-time job. And with everything else he's juggling, good on him. I know many kids his, in this age and stage of life that don't have a part-time job. And um, so clearly he's motivated to have access to some money. Um, and so uh, if you can... Uh, have a conversation about what is what's a reasonable expectation what you're willing to do and not willing to do and, and what a parent is is um, expected to do I don't know how um, reasonable a one gig of memory is in this day and age I do believe that uh, for our teenagers that having uh, basic technology having a phone with certain data plans is sort of basic functioning now just kind of like having a pair of running shoes is doesn't need to be a $500 pair of designer Jordache whatever's no um, but neither do they are they able to you know have a pair of canvas kids if they're doing sports now so I would put the phone in the same thing say what's a reasonable amount of of um, gigabytes for a phone and you know looking at the family socioeconomic status what could you manage and just making it so that there's no strings attached and he that he could pay for the overages um, it seems that money comes up as as a form of control and this happens in in other relationships too this can happen in business partnerships this can happen between husbands and wives and who's the income earner and who has access to the savings and you know who's the spendthrift and you know uh, so 
we we don't want to tell kids how to live their life and so that's the same with the gym membership you know if he if he makes a decision that it's worth it for him to work an extra shift so that he can pay for a gym membership then he must really want to go and that's between him and his um, use of money and if his homework starts to slide um, then his marks go down and he'll have to decide how important that is to him and I would use other consequences to hold him responsible for the um, the chores around the house uh, and again a good consequence should be sort of related to uh, to the chore and you want to sit down at his age and sort of work on that together and say uh, help me understand uh, how you can participate in keeping the house organized here uh, and what should happen if you can't uh, hold up that end and um, you know so I don't know what you guys work out together, but I wouldn't, you know, you're doing a lot of work trying to solve these problems. And when we're working with teenagers, we want to work together to talk together about solutions to things that aren't working so that it doesn't feel like it's a new rule that you're imposing upon him. Uh, and just say, this formula is not working. We, we need to try another thing. And it may be that, you know, during the weekday, I found with my kids, I did dishes during the weekday because they were running around in crazy schedules, but I gave them non-time specific things that I didn't care about that didn't interfere with, with my life. So, you know, I didn't care when the dusting got done or the vacuuming got done so long as it was done once a week. So that gave a little bit more flexibility. Um, so see if there's, you know, maybe something that, uh, that's got a little bit more flexibility with his busy schedule that he could still be pitching in you know, washing the car or getting the car filled or something that's something like that. Hope that helps. All right. Moving along to the next one. Hi, Allison. First of all, I love listening to you and absolutely love your parenting advice. Thank you so much for all that you do. I'm a mom of four and I'm writing today about my seven-year-old son. I often feel like I'm at my wits end with him. I also have other family members who feel the same when he is around and his older sister especially is struggling with handling him as well. We have many challenges, but one of our biggest is that he disregards us when we ask him to do something or to stop doing something and he persists on. For example, we allow him to read before bed for a few minutes and I give him a warning to wrap up the reading because it was getting late and lights need to go out. He shares a room with a sibling, um, but he persists on his reading, even talking about the book. I acknowledged the comment and said something to the effect of, wow, that's really cool and we can look into this tomorrow morning, but it's time for bed now. He kept repeating his comment, trying to essentially lure me into his book more and more. And then through a fit that I proceeded to remind him that it was bedtime and that we could talk more tomorrow. He ended up crying hysterically and I had to leave the room for a few minutes because I just didn't have it in me to continue down this path. I came back in and had a conversation with him about all his choices to not do as I ask, etc. I told him that I loved him, etc. But felt it just ended kind of blah. These situations happen all the time, whether it be something like this or he is pestering a sibling, which he does daily. He also puts his siblings down, especially his little brother who looks up to him and views things often as a competition, like my toy is stronger than yours. Well, I know how to actually play this sport and you don't. We correct, we take away privileges, have him sit out in timeouts. I am very complimentary when he makes good choices and I'm trying hard to make sure I stay on top of this, but this is getting exhausting. I don't feel like anything works for more than a day. I'd appreciate any advice you have for us. Thank you so much. So thank you for the question. You've given me a bunch of examples there 
But let's just kind of go back to some basics here. And the first is to know that when our children are acting in ways that are repetitive and don't meet the needs of the situation, we call those misbehaviors. And from a parent's point of view, it's because we don't like what the child is doing. In this case, you ask him to stop and he won't, or you ask him to do something and he won't, he basically, he won't listen. But from the child's point of view, they are not misbehaving. That's not how children view it. If we step inside the world of the child, what we see is that the child is trying to solve a problem. The behavior that a child exhibits is the solution to a problem. Their solution is the problem for the parent. So what we know is that every time we have a misbehavior, we have a child who is trying to solve a problem of life and that somewhere it comes from feelings of inferiority that they are trying to overcome and they are trying to overcome them through the creativity of behaviors to help them reach a goal. And so he is struggling. Um, and you can see the picking on his siblings and the not going along with the family requests um, that um, he's he's um, somehow feeling that he's sort of low man on the totem pole here. One of the most, we look at different things that would make a child have feelings of inferiority. And one of them is the feeling that another sibling is preferred. So when you're the child whose creative um, approaches at solving problems gets you disciplined by your parent, then you get in trouble more and you'll not realize because all behavior that our kids are doing is at a pre-conscious level. You'll just know that I'm the one who always gets in trouble. And you know, my brother and I are having a fight, but I'm the one who gets told to go to a timeout and I'm the one who gets the um, privileges removed. And so they feel hard done by they start to create a belief system that, and I'm guessing here because I'd have to check it out with him, but um, he might start developing a belief system that says life is unfair and I always get the fuzzy end of the lollipop or that people in this family are out to get me. And, um, and so um, the problem with once you develop some of these beliefs in a family is you start, again, unwittingly participating in creating problems for yourself. So what you end up doing is you start behaving in ways that reinforce or create a reenactment to validate that you're being treated unfairly. And so you keep the light on when your other uh, other brother isn't. And then when you're told to turn off the light, you go, see, I'm treated unfairly. All I wanted to do is just read one more minute longer. Um, so they kind of set these traps to lure you into to doing what you're doing so that they can have um, confirmation of their belief that I'm not treated well in this family. So we want to, first of all, um, uh, try to change those, that, those negative beliefs and move them more in line with common sense. And one of the ways I want to do that is to help you understand that, that of, of the things that are discouraging to kids, one of them is a feeling like a sibling is preferred. And you can see that he's competing with his, my dolls, you know, my toys stronger than yours, or I know how to do it. It's a lazy man's way of trying to look good by making somebody else look worse. This competing and striving. If he was feeling better and had less inferiority feelings, he wouldn't feel so threatened about his place in the family and the threat of a younger brother that he keeps knocking down a peg in order to look good himself. So I think this is a byproduct of his inferiority feelings. So what the, the goal here is that we want to give him a big encouragement bomb. And one of the ways to do that is to help alleviate this feeling of, of um, 
things being unfair uh, or that there's this sibling favoritism. And we can do that by understanding, you can go back and listen to some of the other podcasts on sibling fighting and sibling rivalry. But when kids engage in, in these competitions and these fights and these picking on situations, um, we often just see the aggressor. So this seven-year-old gets involved in a dynamic with a sibling, but only he gets in trouble because he goes too far or he, it looks from your perspective that he went first or he started it or he's always the aggressor. He's sort of got that role in the family of being the troubled kid. And he can't shake the reputation, he can't shake the role. But the truth is, every other one of his siblings also participate in keeping him in that negative light in that they also have ways of poking the bear, at keeping him dysregulated, at not going along with him, at being upset with him, or just looking so much better than him, being easygoing, not giving you a hard time, you know? Well, I turned off my light. I know when to go to bed. I mean, there's a middle su- million subtle things that the other kids do that they have choices as well. So if there's conflict, what we say is it takes two people to have sibling conflict. It doesn't matter which one started it. It doesn't matter which one stayed with it. It doesn't matter who cried, who threw the hit, who did the insulting. It doesn't matter. Two siblings who are kerfuffling both need to experience the same consequence. And it's a consequence, not a removing of privileges, because that can be viewed as punitive. So if they're fighting over the iPad, they both lose the iPad. If they're fighting over the cereal box, nobody gets cereal. If they can't share the bike, the bike gets put away until they make a plan for sharing the bike properly. They can't um, be in the same room without somebody getting physical, then they both get separated for a few minutes and they can try again later. But they both have to experience the same consequence. So when that starts to happen, when the one brother starts to, to the seven-year-old starts to, you know, uh, get like agitated and starts poking his, his brother because he wants longer on Paw Patrol on the iPad when they're playing together, before... In the old regime that you were running, if the younger sibling who wanted to play Paw Patrol starts to cry and, and complain and go, he's taking away my, my, my Paw Patrol time, then you go, hey, 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 seven-year-old, go to your room. You don't talk to your brother like that. You share that, th- that toy. But if he starts to get upset, now he's like, if I start to cry and call my parents over, I'm not going to get Paw Patrol. So he's going to start digging deep and saying like, hey, just a second, I'll give you one more turn. Um, how about I'll give you time playing with my ball if you give me time on the, on the Paw Patrol game. They will start to work harder to cooperate. So instead of getting him in trouble, he starts to work with him to, to, to get to some conflict resolution. So absolutely put them in the same boat. That's a a big, big thing. Um, And the second thing is how else can he, instead of striving for superiority over others, how can we get his striving in a more meaningful way in your family? How can he show up? What strengths and talents does he have that could be put to good use in your family? Is he funny? Can he tell a a joke at the dinner table every night and, and be your joker? Is he organized? Can he be somebody who goes through the junk drawer and organizes the junk drawer? Um, is he a planner? Can he help do stuff on the computer? I mean, what does he do well and how can he be helpful and useful in the family and let his good qualities shine so that he can show up in a way that isn't just the disturber? And then my last point is that kids don't just listen. Um, you can't expect them just to listen. If you ask him to do something and he doesn't do it, you have to have a consequence ready immediately. Um, you know, we don't jump on the couch. I don't expect him to listen. It's like, oh, well, it looks like I'll come over and have to put you down from there. Or if you can't be in this room and not jump on the couch, then this room is out of order. Kids learn from what happens, not from what you say. 
And if you threaten consequences and don't follow through, he's not going to get the learning. So I wonder if part of the reason that at bedtime, when he was pushing the boundary, pushing the boundary on turning off the light, turning off the light, if it turns out that sometimes he can get extra time and push that boundary and you're okay with it and you let him talk about the book for a few minutes and other times you don't and you chalk that line harder, the arbitrariness of when you do and don't give him flexibility may be the thing that he feels is unfair and creates the explosion. So I find for these kind of kids, believe it or not, I don't mean strict, but the, the firmer and more consistent you are with boundaries, the clearer the boundaries, and the more you enforce them consistently, the better they learn, the faster they learn, the less misbehavior you have. And it's about doing it in a way that is is friendly. And you did a great job there with like, I look forward to hearing about it in the morning. That was really lovely and friendly. Um, so so just keeping those two together until he, he figures it out. I also wonder, last point here, is, you know, if you're in the middle of you know, middle kids in a family, I know there's four, but middle kids in a family tend to be the most discouraged. They have the hardest time finding their place, which is why I'm saying we want to be a bit of a talent hunter there. But it also means that, um, you know, he, he may feel that um, he as having being an older sibling, if he's got two younger siblings, that there should be some privileges to being a little bit older. And so maybe he doesn't like having lights out at the same time as a younger sibling. Maybe that doesn't feel fair to him. And so maybe you talk about bedtime and lights out and now that he's getting older that maybe he needs a little bit more reading time. And does that mean that he gets a flashlight and he gets a fi- he gets five minutes of reading quietly under the covers while his younger brother goes to sleep? Or does he get to stay downstairs reading on the couch while his younger brother falls to sleep in the bed? Or maybe think about how you might give him a little bit of a... Um, a little something extra so that he sees a little goodwill there. sounds like reading is something he's really intrigued in as an opportunity for for bonding. So maybe find some one-on-one reading time with him. You don't have to do it with everybody else in the family. You know, it's, uh, um, you know, we, not every kid is, is discouraged, right? The one who's misbehaving is the one who's discouraged and they need more connection and, and, um, confirmation, uh, uh, that the relationship is healthy. So, you know, do make some special things that you do just with him that you don't necessarily do with the, uh, with the other kids and, um, and watch that behavior to kind of come around as he starts to have less inferiority feelings, um, because he's getting that connection, you're you're showing him that he's not inferior. You're helping him overcome those inferiority feelings. You're he's you're challenging the myth that life is unfair for me because you're going to be better at putting kids in the same boat. And hopefully, over time, that'll that'll start to turn around a, a change in his um, perceptions and his behavior in the family. So, good luck with all that. All right, here we have, dear Allison. Thanks from Spain for your amazing guidance. Summary of my question. How should I face a huge tantrum from a super sweet seven-year-old girl when she really insults me and when there's no way I can get away from the conflict? Here's the background. I'm a mother of three, a seven, six, and four-year-old. I've been divorced for three years. Kids live at home, the four of us, and they spend uh, one every other weekend with their father and also spend Wednesdays after school with him. Divorce has been a very difficult legal process. The kids have suffered some stress during the process. They are much better now. So here's my question or situation. My seven-year-old daughter doesn't eat much lunch. 20 minutes after lunch, she asks me for an omelet. I tell her she knows the rules and she needs to wait until the next snack time. 
Here is when she starts losing her temper that keeps growing tremendously. I try to get out of the conflict, but she chases me, yelling at me, insulting me. You're stupid, silly, the worst mom. I want the omelet, stupid mom, etc. I try her. I try to go to her room, but she scrapes unless I hold the door. I try locking myself in another room, but she manages to open the door. I can't leave the house and leave her alone. But if I stay, I don't feel it's correct that I disrespect myself and I let her insult me. I have had a very bad experience of this during my marriage and it's extremely important to me to set boundaries of respect. This also happens in front of her siblings. Um, They can go on for 40 minutes. The nanny arrived home and I left home in the middle of the tantrum. When I came back 10 minutes later, she melted and started crying and saying she was sorry. This kind of episode used to happen once in a while, but it's been for a really long time that they didn't happen. I hope you can help me to handle this situation if it happens again. Thanks so much um, for such an amazing service that you offer us. Well, you are quite welcome. Thank you all the way from Spain. Uh, so a couple things here. First of all, I'm glad that it hasn't happened very much. And some of these explosive behaviors, I, I always hate to just say they'll grow out of it. That's not very helpful. But it is true that emotional regulation does get better as our kids age. And so I'm glad that she's having a little better go of it there. And it also sounds like some of those background stressors of the divorce and resettling into a pattern of, of visitation and things have settled down. So we expect behaviors to um, kind of settle down when that, those stressors come down. And usually... The transition days are the hardest one on kids. So you might want to pay attention to when these meltdowns happen. Do they happen right after they've been at dad's house? Not to say that he's the cause of it. The transition is often the cause of it. So just maybe keep an eye on that and make transition days pretty light and cuddly and reconnecting and put some extra uh, sort of attention to sort of slow family time on those days. Um, but in terms of the, the concern for respect, which I, I really hear you there, if you've been in a, re- in a relationship where maybe things were verbally abusive or you weren't respected, I can see that would be a high value for you to, to not have that continue and also to transmit those important values onto your kids. But I would also say that remember that nobody can insult you without your permission. Eleanor Roosevelt's famous quote, if somebody walking down the street that was having a psychotic episode started screaming at you, 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 you wouldn't be affected. You just go like, oh, poor guy. I wonder what's wrong with him. Uh, or, you know, if you're standing behind a podium, the CEO of a company and the pr- press gallery or the stakeholders are all screaming at you over the returns or something, you know, you stand there in grace and you get your information out. And, and so we also can't be dysregulated or personalize what's being said. So that's a skill set you'll um, practice developing over time here that, that'll be important to you. And so the kids aren't the uh, it's interesting that the kids are using disrespect as a way of upsetting you in their in their time and we say words are are weapons in the time of conflict um but of course in this case you know to use it so so stingingly also says that our kids tend to push our buttons around our sensitivities so the more that you probably say like let's talk respectfully or don't you disrespect me if that comes out as a big theme you're kind of tipping your cards and educating your kids on if you really want to upset me you can do it by being disrespectful so you get more of what you teach them if you know what i mean in terms of how to upset you so i might try to kind of keep that on the low down in terms of the verbal lesson there and uh, but just do it with your actions which is just what you're doing which I think is great and I think um, a couple of lines that might be helpful is you might say something like I don't let people disrespect me I hope you don't let people disrespect you either and then I would walk away as you're doing because to your point I, I think that once you start to get into a power struggle of holding a child in a in a room holding the doorknob 
Um, I think that that feels like entrapment, and I think that that feels like a, a can be really kind of upsetting to a child that it it feels um, you're containing them, you're holding them there. So um, I think the better thing to do is to do as you're doing, which is I can't get you to calm down, but I can act in a self-respecting manner and move myself away from your storm. And so I would give her the opportunity. Can you calm yourself or do I need to go? I, you know, I won't stand in the faces of disrespect. I need to go. So right now, wherever you did go, you said she can get at you. You're going to have to change that. So whether you buy a hook and eye, a child safety handle, um, install a lock, there needs to be one place in your house where you can go and close the door and have it lock and not have a, a child enter enter that room. Um, so it, look to look to change the physical environment by installing something. And then you need to let her know to do this effectively. Again, give that choice. I need to feel safe. I'm going to go now. Um, when you're calm, I'll be. Uh, I'll come back. If you'd like me to come back, you just need to get calm. So when you close the door, if she pounds on the door and keeps saying you're the worst mummy, you stay there just calmly, read a book. But if she starts to say, you know, okay, okay, I'm going to calm myself, I'll come out, I would open the door immediately. If she continues to calm and stop insulting you, then you stay out. If she turns around and starts hurling insults again, then you close the door and say, oh, I'm sorry, I thought you were ready. doesn't look like you are. You should only have to do this technique. We call it the bathroom technique. You should only have to do this two or three times before she realizes that she has the power to whether that door to you is open or closed. And the, the power comes from her being able to emotionally regulate herself and to control her barfing out the, the words of disrespect. So she should be able to get that after two or three times. Now, going back to the breakfast, going back to the lunch, where, and I just answered another question around this, where I find that kids are the most explosive when they get angry is when they are testing a limit and boundary and they're finding an inconsistent response from their parent. And so if she sometimes gets lunch, an omelet after lunch, like even though you say you know the rules, well, we tell kids rules, but then we don't live by them. So if, if you've been saying, come on, no, no, you got to hold out till snack, but 10% or 20% of the time you give her an apple or you give her a bagel or she gets her omelet. If she sometimes gets her way, then the day that you hold firm, she isn't saying, well, of course, that's a family rule. I understand that. What she's saying is other days you cave into me. Why don't you love me today? And it's so it's that erratic inconsistency that makes them feel that is so, so, so unfair. And so that's the firm part. You've got to be consistent and firm. And then the friendly part of firm and friendly in dem democratic parenting is how we say it. So if we can say, oh, I'm so sorry you got down from the table and you didn't get enough in your tummy. I'm so sorry. Um, we'll have to wait till snack. You can do it. Rub your tummy. Rub your tummy. You'll make it. If we do it in a kind and friendly way, we're still holding the limit, but we're being compassionate. If we say like, well, if you would have eaten your, or you know the rules, if we do it in, in a way that comes across as, as us um, sort of, I told you so, or I'm the king of the castle and look at you suffering down there, we're going to get that kind of emotional feed, uh, response, that, that explosion. So hopefully that will help. And the other thing is that people that are, um, you know, kind of into to, to power and explosions and whatever, is I would say, how can we, again, take these kids and put them to good use? Um, misbehaving kids are underemployed kids. I think I've been loving that saying. And so what else can she do to be helpful around the family? Because that's where feeling big and feeling important comes from, not from conquering parents, but from doing chores and pitching in and being helpful and being needed and contributing to how the family functions. And even if she's only only seven, try, try to find ways to help her um, participate in family life. 
And, um, and, and if certainly she's of an age where, you know, we can start talking ab- about having family meetings and getting her to have some say and some input into meals and food and when we eat and when we don't eat and, you know, um, because she'll be more cooperative if she feels that she's got a voice and a say. Uh, and so maybe we, maybe we, you shake up what's available for lunch or when lunch is served or I don't know what, I don't know, but it'll it, it, get her talking about it at a meeting outside the time of conflict. And I have one last one for you. Dear Allison, I am new to the study of Adlerian psychology and I am so happy to have found your podcast. I am quickly getting caught up on all the back episodes and trying to absorb as much great parenting advice as possible. Here's my question for the podcast. I am a university chemistry professor who teaches primarily first-year students, mostly 18 and 19-year-olds who are new to college. I've been exploring an upgrading approach to assessment where I provide constant feedback and support about what students are doing right or wrong, but I refuse to assign point values, percentages, or any sort of grade to their work. At the end of the academic term, I ask the students what grade they should receive, and in almost every case, that's the grade that I assign. A couple of times I have to give a higher grade than they suggest. How can I encourage my students complimenting their efforts, their growth, and their learning while at the same time asking them to grade their work in the course by focusing on performance and not effort? Stated another way, how can I encourage them to think objectively about their learning and self-assessment while at the same time praising their effort and perseverance in my classroom? My concern is having a student that thinks, well, I still don't know chemistry, but I tried really hard, so I should get an A. How can I give a student like this to feel good about their level of effort, but also think clearly and objectively about their performance in the course? Sorry for the long questions. Thanks for all the advice. Um, so I had, uh, we emailed a little bit back and forth on this and I did, uh, connect this particular person with somebody who, uh, teaches because a lot of the people that are um, more senior in Adlerian psychology, not only have a counseling practice, but a lot of them teach at the PhD university level. And so I'm sure that they want to walk the talk and maybe have some creative ways that they do grading. So um, a lot of times when we talk about the application of Adlerian psychology in education, we do more elementary school classrooms. That's more the application that I'm accustomed to. Um, so I wanted to share just a couple things that that would be helpful, but I've connected in with somebody who's a prof. So I think they will have a robust conversation. I'll, I'll see what comes of that. But here's a couple things um, that I've seen in the past. One is um, an Adlerian school that um, used to have a way of differentiating their learning by having three statuses. So you would have, let's say you were doing your times tables, for example, again, I'm going to use like a simple elementary school. So let's say that, you know, you have to learn your one, two, threes, fours, and fives times tables. So the, you had a choice then of having three categories that you could put yourself in. You're either, I haven't begun learning this. So if you're just starting on your twos times table, you haven't started learning your five times tables. So um, I haven't begun learning this yet. Once you start practicing your five times tables, you're now in this next category, which says, I am learning this now. I'm learning my five times table. And when they learn their five times table, then they move to the third category, which is, I have learned this. So we have three statuses, but it's around this skill, right? I haven't begun learning. I'm learning this now. I have successfully learned this. So in chemistry, it might be a rubric around knowing the difference of the different types of, you know, bonds, right? An ionic or a covalent bond. Um, I haven't begun learning bonds yet. I am learning about bonds. I have now learned the difference between ionic and covalent bonds. So think about it that way. Now, when I was in high school, I took um, 
what my chemistry teacher put together an award-winning chemistry program that was a self-taught program. And the way it was broken down was, again, you had modules every week. But what you got to do was you you had to pick at the beginning of the year, did you want to go for an A, B, C, in, in, and I think even a D in chemistry. And so you had, to, you had to make your best guess at what level you thought you could do. So if you were picking an A, you were in the blue, the blue curriculum. And if you were a B, you were in the red curriculum. And C, you were in the orange curriculum. So everybody went to class. Everybody picked up their module for the week. And you worked on your module. At the end of the week, you had a test. And you were scored on your module. But if you were in the B, you could never get an A in the course. You could get 100% of being a B. And then there was participation and effort marks that you could self-assign at the end as well. And so there was part that was based on the rubric of learning and part of it that was on the participation and effort. And the other thing that was important about this was that you were allowed to move up or down one level throughout the year. So if you said, oh, I'm going to get an A and you start failing your, your tests at the end of the week. You might say, oh, well, I don't want to fail my A's, but I, I, I'd rather get a high B. I'm going to move down a level. Um, so I don't know if that methodology is, is, is helpful for you, this breaking it down into smaller measurable items. So it still does talk about the core components that you have. So things to noodle around. So I hope that little bit of <laughs> a little bit of contribution there is helpful. All right. Well, those are all my questions, people. Thank you so much for sending them in. I hope this is helpful and useful to you. And I look forward to getting more questions. It's um, just hashtag ask Allison. You can send them to me at hello at allisonshafer.com. There's links in the show notes and have a great time until next one. As you know, it takes a village to make a podcast, so thanks to my team, including Max Cotter, my editor and technician, as well as the crew at H2O Digital. This podcast was recorded in Toronto, Canada. We acknowledge the land we are meeting on is the traditional territory of many nations, including the Mississaugas of the Credit, the Anishinaabek, the Chippewa, the Haudenosaunee, and the Wendat people, and is now home to many diverse First Nations, Inuit and Métis. We also acknowledge that Toronto is covered by Treaty 13 with the Mississaugas of the Credit. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm lip fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're 
you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.